Hi, I'm Jeremy Brock. Thank you so much for coming this evening. On behalf of the British Academy, uh, welcome to the eighth year of the International Screenwriters Lectures held in conjunction with Lucy Gard and the JJ Charitable Trust. This year we have gathered together an extraordinarily gifted quartet of screenwriters and auteurs, beginning with tonight's opening lecturer, the world-renowned, Oscar-winning, BAFTA-winning screenwriter Mark Bowl. Mark's credits include three astonishing films, The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, and the searingly powerful Detroit. Working in collaboration with Catherine Bigelow, Mark's screenplays, anchored by his experience as a journalist, pulsate with a forensic attention to detail, an unflinching grip on truth, and a supreme gift for storytelling. BAFTA is hugely proud and honored to welcome such a great talent. I have a whiskey. This is perfect. Um, it is actually a great, a great uh, pleasure to be here um, in the cultural heart of London. And I would like to thank uh, my lovely hosts, uh, Maria, who's also already been thanked, but also Amanda Berry, Jeremy Brock, Lucy Gard, and Cassandra Neal. Mm. <sighs> okay, I might do that a few times. But um, yeah, truly, truly happy to be here, and, and, and I'll tell you why. It's not just because BAFTA is an important cultural institution, which is needed now more than ever in this climate of rapa rapacious commercialism. It's not just because BAFTA stands for truth and integrity and innovation in the arts, values which are not invincible or almighty, but are in fact quite fragile and must always be nourished and renewed. And I'm happy to be here not just because I've received two BAFTAs, and the encouragement that they confer has pushed me to continue to try my hand at serious work. And I'm happy to be here not just because we're going to have a probing talk tonight, which is going to make us incrementally better people, or at least that's the hope. The truth is, if I'm completely honest with you, which I'm going to try to be completely honest tonight, I'm happy to be here because I'd be happy to be just about anywhere that wasn't the United States of America right now, <laughs> and particularly Los Angeles. Uh, I'm not sure that there's any community more shameful today than Hollywood, now the sex crime capital of the world, possibly only beaten by Bangkok or the US Senate, Congress, and the White House. <laughs> I lose either way because before I was a screenwriter, I was a journalist. So I do seem to have a flair for joining publicly disliked communities. And let me just say, although it, it, it sort of goes without saying, that the, the sexual criminality that has come to light among Hollywood's most powerful men stains all of us. But I know for a fact, and I know from my own experiences working on three motion pictures with a female director, that sexual oppression, while it may be prevalent, is not inherent in the arts or the demands of creative work. It's, it seems odd to have to say this, but I'll say it. It is entirely possible to be creatively unshackled and free, to scoff at convention, to dismantle taboos on screening, on screen, excuse me, while maintaining absolute respect in real life for the boundaries of other people. And I would argue that it's actually easier to make humanistic art if you practice straightforward humanism in your dealings with real people. Now, having said that, what I'd like to focus on today is something that I think is a bit lost in the current conversation 
about the criminal behavior of powerful people. Although I hope you won't think it's too cynical if I point out that Harvey Weinstein's exposure as a sociopath coincided with his loss of economic power in the indie film space. In any event, I'd like to turn to the actual work that's being produced in California right now in the mainstream kind of area of the movie business. And I do feel somewhat qualified to comment on this even though all my movies have been independent films. I have a fairly good idea of what they're up to at the studios since many of my friends work there. And I have been known to go to a studio party from time to time. Okay, so there are two articles of faith and forgive me if you already know this, but some of you in your sort of cultural isolation in the United Kingdom may not know this. There are two articles of faith that are, uh, hold sway these days in Los Angeles. The first article of faith is that within the American movie business, the room for serious popular art is basically gone. The movie business has shifted nearly all of its energy to the tent poles of the youth market. I think you know the films I mean. I won't mention them, maybe I will. <laughs> talking about the superhero pictures that are all quite similar to each other that feel as if they've been engineered rather than written. They are essentially high surface value commercials and I mean that in the technical literal sense of a commercial that these are motion pictures used to sell action figures, video games, theme park tickets and so on. And the truth is the ancillary value of all of those other products collectively outweigh uh, the, the, the economic value of the movies themselves. Having said that, I, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with this trend, which we've been living with for some time right now, uh, any more than I think it's wrong to read fairy tales to children. Uh, these are stories for kids, which is just fine with me, and, and, and actually some of them do contain quite skillful storytelling and fine acting. Logan comes to mind as an example of that. And more importantly, nearly all of those movies have a global impact. And the truth is that nobody in Fallujah saw Detroit but I imagine some people there did see Captain America. And in the big picture, the tent poles, a very big picture, do push out a value set, a basic value set of, let's say, the importance of fair play, equal opportunity, justice winning over evil. And these values are, in fact, pillars of Western culture. And just as an aside, I know the, the folks who, who, who work in the sort of counterterrorism business uh, consider these films to be very important transmitters of democratic ideals, believe it or not, they do. So, I don't think theme park movies are some degrading or pernicious influence, except insofar as they suck up energy and money that was once devoted to making movies for adults, what you might call real movies. Uh, okay, that's the first trend. The other trend that's going on in Hollywood right, right now, the second article of faith, is that we ought not to be too terribly discouraged by the industry shift towards making movies for kids, because the adult material has simply migrated to television. As I'm sure you've heard, TV is where the action is for a writer these days. And the line is that on TV, creative risks are rewarded. On TV, complex, complex subject matter is encouraged. Morally ambiguous characters are welcome, and so on. Uh, I think the notion that TV is a savior might be slightly exaggerated for a number of reasons, which I won't get into. And, Although the gap is closing between, between movies and films, and there are creative possibilities, let's say, that are latent in the form of television that I think have yet to be explored. And I don't hold myself above television anyway. In fact, I'm writing a television series right now about the US presidential election, the most recent one. 
the working title of that was going to be What the Fuck Just Happened. <laughs> but I, I mentioned that at a dinner to, uh, that a Clinton camp person was at, and she stole my title for her book. So now my working title is The End of the Republic. But in any event, I, I'm not ready to give up on movies because I happen to believe, I do believe this, that, that neither the tent poles nor the abundance of highly addictive television uh, quite replicate the impact that real movies have had on our culture and that they can continue to have. However, the question has been raised, and I've discussed this with many friends in the business, and I would say this is the, apart from the Harvey conversation, this is the dominant question today in LA. Given that there's a very high bar now set for a theatrical success, and given that audiences are mostly made up of younger people looking to escape their parents, and given that good things can now be attempted on television, the question is, what's the point of making a real movie anymore? So I'm going to take the rest of my time to lay out a very provisional answer to that question, which I sketched out on the flight over here. It's, it's quite a simple theory, really. First of all, let's think about the movie-going experience for a second and compare it to television. When we go into that dark room, we give up certain rights that, we, that have become second nature to us, namely the right to have exactly what we want when we want it. That's the great advantage of TV in this era of on-demand everything. Television lets us stay in our bubbles and remain in the basically consumer's position of choosing what impressions we allow ourselves to absorb. In the movie theater, on the other hand, you can't switch the channel, adjust the volume, or unless you're a complete asshole, check your Instagram feed. You can't even really use the bathroom because the, the entire seating arrangement of the theater has sort of been designed to make that difficult to get up and squeeze past everybody else in the aisle. So in a very real sense, you're trapped when you sit down to a movie. And I think this is actually the, the most salient feature of a motion picture these days. It's often said that the distinctive feature of films over television is the size of the screen, and you hear uh, directors talk about that quite a bit. But I don't think this is quite so true anymore with the prices of large television sets falling. And it is quite possible to replicate a cinematic experience in your house, except for one thing, you're in your home and you're not trapped. You're free to pause, you're free to grab a sandwich, check the internet, and if you're really at wit's end, you could even read a book. So given that the movie theater audience is by definition sort of a captive audience, voluntarily, but captive, it's natural for a writer to ask what to do with this power, uh, what to do with these people who, at least for a short period of time, are captive, um, because I guess if the kind of writing I'm going to do is the sort that uh, elicits constant engagement and is constantly pleasurable, that sort of writing might well be suited to television, might well be suited to competing against other channels. But if, on the other hand, the writing is meant to be challenging, and by that I mean challenge audiences specifically, let's say in the case of Detroit, by asking the audience to undergo a bracing experience, uh, or by challenging audiences by asking them to reshuffle their mythologies of race, class, or gender, as let's say Barry Jenkins did with Moonlight, or challenge an audience by asking them to expand their notions of the limits of grief and guilt, uh, as in Manchester by the Sea, or challenge an audience by deconstructing the experience of time itself, as Nolan, uh, did in Dunkirk, then I think one is better off attempting these sorts of artistic maneuvers with the captive audience of a theater. 
Now for me, as a former journalist, the type of challenge I like to pose are drawn from that background, the sense of responsibility that journalists have to engage in the hard truths of the world. Working with Catherine, I sought to take that impulse and combine it with, let's say, imaginative filmmaking. That's something that I had to defend somewhat after we made Zero Dark Thirty about the hunt for Osama bin Laden, because a lot of important people in the media and politics uh, maybe thought they were more familiar with the story than they actually were, insisted that journalism and entertainment can't mix without destroying the quality of journalism. But we were convinced, and I remain convinced, that the combination does more to command people's attention and capture their imaginations than either traditional reporting or purely fictional storytelling does on their own. And I think the result doesn't have to be necessarily any less truthful than what's in a newspaper and in some ways can be more truthful. Now, the case of Detroit. In this instance, I believe that Catherine threw down a, a, an extremely serious and hardcore challenge to the audiences. Uh, probably more so than is generally appreciated, actually. Detroit is, is a movie about a terrible crime. It follows the killing of three young African-American men by three white police officers in 1967. There's obvious parallels with uh, the present, but the decision to write about this particular story came after a meeting I had with a man who had been one of the survivors named Cleveland Larry Reed. Uh, Cleveland was, or Larry as he's called in the movie, was, was somewhat hard to find and he hadn't talked about the events in the film for, for nearly 50 years. But the long and short of it, if you haven't seen the movie, is that in the summer of 67, he was a uh, up-and-coming musician, the singer of a band called The Dramatics, a singer in the band called The Dramatics. And one summer night at a place called the Algiers Motel, he had an encounter with law enforcement that left him permanently wounded, mentally and artistically. And here's the important part. What brought Larry down what caused this sort of loss for him uh, wasn't a flaw in his character. It wasn't a bad decision that he made in the heat of the moment. It was merely shitty luck for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and more generally racism. Uh, this somewhat defied conventional narrative technique because in the usual screenwriter's tool block, toolbox, uh, character de determines fate to a large degree. And in this case, I had to write a story in which the character had very little agency at all in the face of a uh, unjust society kind of pressing down on him and uh, hemming him in. When I started Detroit, I thought of it as Larry's story, one man who has his voice stolen from him. But it didn't turn out to be that simple without shortchanging the larger events swirling around him. And the cast of characters gradually grew. And as I wrote, I found myself working in a sort of horror genre vein except in this case, the supernatural element was replaced with the all too real terror of racism. And the narrative as it emerged had elements of a crime saga set against the backdrop of a city on fire. And again, in another twist on convention, the perpetrators in this story turned out to be the police. Having said all that, ultimately, and I am actually getting to a point here, ultimately what we wanted to do with Detroit is to bring the audience in tight proximity to the commission of these crimes. Uh, the crimes committed by police against these, these uh, basically innocent young people. So that rather than being in the unusually comfortable, the usual comfortable spot of sitting back and assembling clues and evaluating motives, like with most crime stories, the idea was to put you, the audience, smack in the middle of the thing, forcing you to absorb what happened to the victims. 
Another way of saying that is that Catherine wanted the audience to undergo the same sort of humiliation and loss of dignity as the victims did. Think about that for a second. That's an incredibly daring thing to do uh, and a very big challenge to the audience. I believe that Catherine took this approach because she thought it was the only way to be truthful to the stories that Larry and the others told and the only way to connect their experience to ours and create a genuine sense of empathy, which you could argue is the, the purpose of art in the first place. Now the question, of course, is that does Detroit work in this regard? And I think that's quite a complicated question, actually. So anecdotally, a friend of mine who's an architect saw the movie and said he felt as if he was being punished for something that he hadn't done. Uh, I've heard this from a few other people. He implied that there was something in that experience that was unfair to him. Again, that experience of reliving a crime in a very uh, visceral and detailed way. And that I think he implied that, that there was something unfair in the way we made him feel complicit in the crimes that were being committed as he was forced to witness them. Now his wife, who works for an international NGO, perhaps a better person, had a much different reaction. <laughs> she was moved by the film, deeply actually, and she told me it made her reconsider her life's priorities and she was now thinking about shifting her career uh, towards fighting to end racial injustice. So here you have a married couple, presumably they share a common worldview, split on the question of the movie, my guess is they had an easier time after they saw Thor. But, but the reaction that my architect friend had has, has, did sort of stay with me. Because when you watch Detroit, the feeling of being treated as if you were complicit is quite powerful. Uh, I don't know that I've ever felt that about a movie myself. And it, 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 the feeling of unfairness is also quite powerful. But the more I thought about it, the more sense it made to me, because this is actually the kind of feeling that follows naturally from the way that Catherine directed the movie. The other people that were treated unfairly are Larry and the people in the motel, as well as their families, who had to go and identify the bodies the next day. They could not, for the life of them, understand why this has happened to the people that they loved. And the reason they couldn't understand why their sons were murdered is because there was no really good reason it was simply unfair. Now, this is where things get a bit complex. Some people, like my architect, who, who by and large were on board with the agenda of the film, not agenda, that's not quite right, but the themes of the film, have suggested to me that it's a pity that the movie probably won't be seen by people who needed it the most, need to see the film the most. I think he meant by that the sort of can't get through a whole lecture without saying Trump. The sort of stereotypical Trump supporter, uh, let's say from the depressed American heartland, who perhaps harbors racist sentiments. And the idea is that this movie was really aimed to those folks, but they're probably not likely to see it. I'm not so sure that's right. Detroit is not simply a story of racism, of a bad cop who is terrified of black people and meets out justice according to skin color. What it's really about, if you look at the film closely, is the complicity of the white people around this pathological cop in excusing and justifying his crimes. It's really about the way that racism works in an institution like the Detroit Police Department circa 1967. And what it says is that racism allows pathology to flourish uncorrected. In other words, that racism creates a sort of environment 
in which truly horrendous acts go unchecked. In other words, the film kind of connects ordinary complicity with the worst kind of murder. And in that regard, I would say that maybe the greatest challenge the film presents is not to about racists. It's to the people who actually applaud themselves for having advanced views on race relations. If I can be blunt, white people, liberals, who consider themselves the friends and supporters of African Americans, but who aren't actually doing anything to change the lingering injustices that we all acknowledge exist. To people like my friend who absolutely do not consider themselves complicit in a racially unjust world, the film suggests that perhaps he is wrong. It does this through its emotional impact, through the way it challenged him to absorb an experience he would think he had absolutely nothing to do with. His first intellectual response to me, which is, wait, I'm not complicit, I'm not responsible, this is unfair, sort of fades when you consider his emotional response, because if you're not complicit, why does the movie make you feel so strongly? Anyway, as you can imagine, that was rather hard to figure out how to put all that on a poster. So, in closing, I don't want to leave you with the impression that making serious movies is some kind of righteous cross that I bear. Uh, I do it because I want to, mostly, and because I really couldn't think of anything else to do. And while it can seem like a struggle and a fight at times, it's also a great privilege that I don't take for granted. In some countries, you risk being thrown in prison for trying to dismantle prevailing thought structures. In my country, and in this one, we don't face that threat. Our only serious fight is against, let's say, Mickey Mouse and Thor. And I think that's a pretty fair fight in the end. <coughs> so far, it seems to me that Thor is winning, Captain America is winning. But as I look around and continue to see daring work being produced, and as I think about the commitment of organizations like BAFTA and all of you here, I think in the long run, I like our odds, and I think we're going to be fine. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Um, Thought-provoking, as we would expect. Um, and I want to pick, unpick some of the things that you've talked about a little bit there, but let's just go back, way, way back, if we, if we may. I mean, you said just now you're making films because you couldn't think of anything else to do. I mean, don't buy that for a moment. But the, the Totally true. <laughs> I think I would be a pretty decent dog trainer. <laughs> but the, I don't really have any other skills. But you were a journalist. Um, so what kind of a journalist were you? Uh, print, mm -hmm. long-form investigative reporting, narrative nonfiction, magazines. Um, Particular areas of interest were? Uh, I did um, political reporting. Mm -hmm. I did, I covered youth culture, uh, drug culture. That was, that was a good beat. Um, what else? True crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was early on the, the sort of surveillance aspects of the internet, um, the environmental movement, the labor movement, lots of different, uh, never did celebrity journalism, wasn't never quite cool enough for that, but they would, but I did the, the sort of long articles that people don't read anymore. 
<laughs> but, and it was a series of articles, that, the Death and Dishonor series of articles for Playboy that, that gave you your first kind of connection with the film industry. And that was Paul Haggis and in the Valley of the Place I Can Never Cut. Is it Ela or yeah. Ella? Oh, you could say either. Whatever. Paul, Paul says either. But yeah, Paul bought that article. I wrote a piece for Playboy that was the, uh, a true story of a, a soldier who was uh, murdered by his platoon mates when he got back from the war in Iraq, and uh, the story was about his father trying to figure out what had happened to his son. Uh, his father had been an MP. And anyway, Paul optioned that article, and I went out to Hollywood to work with him on the story and answer his questions as he was sort of developing the story. And that's how it all got started for me. And what was it that you saw during that process? I mean, what, what were the possibilities that then you could see in the film? Well, first of all, he had a really big house. <laughs> and I thought, Jesus Christ, I'll never get one of these as a journalist. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 it was just, he was very, 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 very generous with his time. And he really showed me how a certain way of breaking down a story, I mean, just in a technical sense. And I mean, I, of course, I'd studied writing in, 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 the, in as far as prose um, quite a bit, but not, but not dramas. And so, it was it was just sort of seeing behind the curtain of how he of how he put a story together that made me feel that next time I had a story that I liked I would try to do it myself and that and that next one was a story about the bomb squad which which became, became Hurt, Hurt Locker. Locker yeah yeah and so I mean the Hurt Locker was so striking when we all first saw it because of because of that sense of unease that is there right from the beginning, even though we don't really know, we're not actually invested in any kind of traditional way in the character. Um, that was clearly something, I mean, was that something that you and Catherine Bigelow developed together, that, or was that something that you knew from the very beginning with a story that you wanted to try and do? Which part, sorry? Well, the, the idea that you feel, right from the beginning, you feel really uneasy. I mean, this, it's, about, it's about stress and trauma. Oh, yeah. But, well, that really came out of, um, that sense of unease came out of my experiences when I was in Baghdad. I went there as a reporter and I was um, hanging out with the bomb squad and, and I absolutely terrified uh, for the entire time I was there. And um, it, it's, it's, it's one, of the, one of the features of that war that was a bit unusual is that the enemy was not clearly identified. They weren't wearing uniforms, and there was no clear front. So anytime you left the base, it was potentially a, a, a dangerous situation. And um, I wanted to capture that, that sort of constant level of anxiety, which I guess a war historian would say that might not be unique. But I think it is actually fairly unique, because even in Vietnam, you know, which was obviously Quite bloody, but there were there 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 was a very clearly defined front, and there were there were periods when if you were a, a soldier you were in combat and out of combat. Of course, even in the base you could get attacked, but but in Iraq there was really this this sort of 360 degree threat, mm. and so that was one of the impressions that uh, that I had that that stuck with me. And so there were a lot of conversations with Catherine about how to put that on the page and into a movie, and that so. That, that idea that anybody you come across, even in the sort of hearts and minds kind of conversation with somebody on the street, there's always that level of level of threat. So, I mean, did you, you'd observed obviously having worked with Paul Haggis, uh, I mean, the, the whole kind of screenwriting 
business did you go away and study lots and lots of films? Because it was so assured, that film, in terms of the screenplay. Thank itself. you. No, I mean, I bought all the books, but uh, I, they, weren't, they weren't that helpful because they were all, first of all, some of them were very complicated and I couldn't understand what they were trying to say. <laughs> and second of all, it seemed to me that uh, it would be easy to retroactively put a scheme on a work of art and say this is how the art was produced, but that's not really... I mean, if it was really that simple, um, everybody would be, you know, cranking out important works all the time. So, um, I mean, I, 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 I guess I learned by by doing it and by studying movies that I that I liked and by having, you know, the good fortune of of having known Paul, having having met Catherine, um, John Logan, who's a, a playwright and prominent screenwriter, uh, was a friend at the time who who gave me a lot of his time, and, and I was just lucky to have people uh, kind of walk me through the basics. And then doubly lucky to have a, di a director in Catherine who's willing to try some of the more sort of unconventional screenwriting ideas that I had. And was that something that, when you say try, I mean, that was, to what extent did you have lots of discussions before you ever got to shooting about what might or might not work? Well, in the case of Herlocker, I mean, I wrote, I don't know how many drafts, but a lot of drafts. And um, it took quite a while to figure out how to, how to do what I was trying to do. But at least I had, from the beginning, a, a sort of clear objective. And so it, it, I guess I'm talking about like technique more than intention. The other thing that I, I guess is not, not as maybe widely talked about with screenwriting is, is the sort of imagistic nature of it. And um, because anything you're writing is, is basically uh, going to be photographed. So um, the things I'm more proud of have to do with laying out the imagery in the writing that tells the story. Because finally, I mean, it, I should have said that in the lecture, but that's one of the things that differentiates movies from television is the, the, the power of the imagery. Did you always have that sense when you, if, you know, when you were a print journalist as well? I mean, did you, was that the way you wrote? Uh, I think when I was a print journalist, I was copying movies <laughs> as far as the, the like, the, the imagistic style, which, I mean, most people do these days. It's hard to write any kind of prose without sort of being influenced by the power of the camera. Mm. And I think writing as a whole has gotten more imagistic. Is that true? Maybe that, that might be true. Yeah, that would make sense to me with generations born in the yeah, second half. I mean, half I'm comparing the, to like the 1700s or something. <laughs> but even from you know second half of the 20th century onwards, I, I think that probably does have to be the case. Um, but in terms of, but, but economy is not something that you can be imagistic, but not necessarily have the economy. And I, I think it's that knowing when to stop to make it more powerful is the, I mean, is that something that you find, how can you judge that? Well, mostly I write for actors, so what well, specific I, actors? No, well, yes, specific actors who are in the movie, but but just in general, I'm I'm pretty aware that someone's going to be performing the lines, and so I try to write in a way that gives as much um, gives them as much space as possible uh, to um, to have as complicated a performance as as so. There's certain kinds of writing that's very directive and that's very. Um, um, expositional, where the actor doesn't really have much room because they're 
there basically to convey information, and it'll sound weird if you convey the information with like too much color. So um, I try to avoid that kind of writing and do writing that's does the smallest amount of exposition possible and gives the actor the most room to kind of explore, you know, subtext and different sort of layers of meaning. And um, economy has something to do with that, but more, more so just having a certain amount of space in the line. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah. And many rewrites on set? In the case of uh, Hurt Locker, yeah, there were. There was, yeah. Um, it's a great privilege to be able to watch something and then see that you know where it works and where it doesn't work, and uh, to be able to fix it on the fly. Some actors don't like that. Uh, um, Jeremy really didn't mind, so that was great. So obviously, Hurt Locker, tremendous success, all those Oscars, BAFTAs. And, um, did that, to have that much success with your first big screenplay, did that, you know, sometimes that can be sort of paralyzing. It did, it ruined me, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, did you feel how, you then, there was then a few years before you came up with Zero Dark Thirty, but had you been working on that nonstop? No, after, after The Hurt Locker, I tried to do a studio movie, mm. um, which turned out to be a really bad idea. I mean, the idea for the movie, I think, was good, and it still may yet be made, but years and years of work that didn't really pan out. So, and then when that didn't uh, materialize, I started working on a story about the hunt for bin Laden. Um, and it was about the failed hunt for Osama bin Laden mm -hmm. uh, in 2000 and, uh, 2001 um, in Afghanistan right after the invasion. And it was about a special forces team, a, a, a army, Delta unit that had gone into the hills of Tora Bora and had come very close to finding Assam bin Laden, but failed. And as I was working on that and writing that, we were actually casting that, uh, and pretty well on our way to making that movie, Assam bin Laden was actually killed in real life. And so that making a movie about the failure to kill him at that point seemed kind of perverse. <laughs> so. That was the second script I wrote that didn't go anywhere. So then I rewrote that whole thing more or less from scratch, and that became Zero Dark Thirty. This is just a little bit like you live by the sword, die by the sword when you get involved in topical material. But that seems to, that always seems to you the way to go. Well, they won't hire me for anything else. Is the problem? <laughs> you don't have a secret yearning. To... I do, but they, but you know, I and I've and I've tried to get those jobs actually, but. Um, and I say, honestly, I'll do a great job with this like science fiction thing. You're gonna, you're gonna love it. And they're like, that's fabulous. But no. <laughs> so you made um, brief reference in your uh, when you were talking just now about people making comments about Zero Dark Thirty who didn't really quite understand what was going on. One of the things that did keep recurring as a kind of argument was, if you like, the point of view of the narrative. Was it? too close to the CIA point of view, mm. was it a... Um, I wonder what you feel about that, because the, to engage, film has to have a point of view. No, it doesn't bother me. I mean, the, the charge that, that, the, that the film uh, was somehow representative of the point of view of the CIA officers, I mean, that was sort of the point of doing it, in my mind. 
Yeah. So I, I mean, the only the only sticking thing is there, or the only sticking point there is that because all of these people were undercover, or at the time they were undercover, and most of them were still active duty when the movie came out. You know, I wasn't able to trot them out on stage or put them in front of a TV camera and have them sort of back up the thrust of the narrative. And so there were quite a lot of people talking about the movie who weren't undercover, weren't privy to, you know. So anyway, it was an interesting, <laughs> it was an interesting situation. But there was also, I suppose, the, the argument about whether the depiction of torture or whether that was that there was any kind of suggestion that it was not that you were being an apologist for torture but that you were suggesting that all that rather the narrative was suggesting that you know torture worked basically it provided results yeah that was an interesting one because i mean it was obviously a part of the movie but i think the extent to which it became part of the political conversation around the film uh was i think to put it bluntly, the movie is a lot more sophisticated than the conversation around the movie became. And um, I think the movie is aided by the ambiguity of its depiction, but, the, but the, the, there wasn't that, that ambiguity or the room for the ambiguity didn't exist in the sort of the uh, politics of the US. And so we got a little bit drafted into some agendas that people had at the time um, and continue to have. And I mean, I'm supportive of those agendas, so it was sort of a mixed bag for me. But, um, but the fact of the matter is that, that um, it's not a news flash, but that, that torture did happen. And uh, those scenes are a lot more authentic, perhaps, than people realize. And it would have been really strange, I think, to omit that from the story, as some people might have wanted, or to portray it as a sideshow because it wasn't a sideshow, it wasn't the, the, the black sites and the gulags and all that stuff that the CIA did was actually quite central to their efforts for a period of time. So I think as a culture we should face that and not, uh, not shy away from it. At least that was the point in the depiction to me. And the fact that there would be debate around it and some of it perhaps not particularly well informed. And, and, and by yeah. the way, one other thing, the, the film depicts people involved in the, in the torture program as then going on to other jobs in the CIA, which at the time, I mean, I knew was actually a fact but hadn't really been discussed. And recently it's come out that that isn't, that, I mean, there are people in senior leadership positions now, some of this is in the news, that, that you know, had a pretty direct hand in all that. So um, I think the movie was actually pretty clear-sighted in that way. But it's, it's sort of about more than that. I mean, ultimately, it's about the price that we paid as a, as a culture for, for chasing the bomb. And, and, and when there is discussion around the film, I mean, that, that's, that's good. You welcome all of that. I mean, I guess your background would prepare you for that. Well, I mean, nobody likes being criticized, but but um, but I thought, look, we were on the front page of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post on the same day, and I think there was more conversation about torture as a result of this movie than there had been at the time that the torture was, even at the time that the torture was first exposed by whoever exposed it in the Washington Post back in the day. So I was quite pleased by that. And, you know, you make these things and you can't, you can't police what people, how how people respond to them, or what the, you know what the what the culture does with them, and it's it's satisfying if there is a conversation that kind of comes with the territory, and um, 
And so, to me, it suggests that the work had an impact, which I don't know what more you could really ask for. So how then did you decide to move on to the summer of 1967 and Detroit? I mean, how many did you, were there a lot of other projects in between that you were navigating between? Or? Yeah, there were a few, uh, a few false starts in, in there. That, that came, the, it, I was probably looking at about 10 or 15 other things at the time and um, I had read, the, John Hersey wrote a book about the, the Algiers Hotel incident, which is an interesting book, not his best, but, but interesting in, in, the, in the sort of texture of it. And um, I read the book on the recommendation of uh, the president of my production company, who I, I didn't know the story and he gave it to me. And then um, it was, as I say, one of probably 10 ideas that we were kicking around. And I went up to Detroit to, um, meet with one of the survivors who's, who, as I said in the speech, Larry Reed. And because um, after reading the book, I thought, well, is there anybody around that can still talk about this? And so we hired some researchers and they came back and said, here's this guy's phone number. And I called him and he didn't want to talk to me. And eventually I did, did persuade him to talk to me. And um, I met him in his apartment uh, up in Detroit. And um, it was really that meeting and that conversation that I, I, I was so moved by his story that I felt, I knew walking out of there that I was gonna write about him. So, I mean, in retrospect, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about these sort of like social motivations, but the truth is I was just moved by his story and um, what he had gone through and his sort of commitment to continuing to live as an artist despite this trauma that he had undergone and um, I don't know. It's just uh, that I'm often inspired by real people. And in, in the, Zero Dark Thirty was actually much the same way. I was casting around, thinking it would be great to now rescue this year and a half of work I'd done on the hunt for Bin Laden with a new story about Bin Laden. But I didn't have a story um, until somebody told me. Hmm, somebody told me that there was a particular. Uh, analyst who had been involved in the in the hunt, and that and that um, she was a she, and that she was quite young, and so forth. And so I thought, no, that's interesting. And then um, it was it was sort of inspired by the reality of that. I'll put it that way. So, with Detroit, there's there's an individual whose story you want to tell, but I mean, then the whole point of Detroit is it isn't really his story in that sense that it, so you can't I mean you can't have that idea can't have sprung fully formed or maybe it did I don't know the idea of of creating this kind of very intense environment where as you just talked about you know that that sense of how it is going to make us question what went how did you how did you get to that well it was always his story in my mind even though I was probably <laughs> writing about other people um how did I get to what? How did you get to the, the fact that the actual sort of, if you like, the technique, the idea of having that, that kind of crucible of the incident itself at the center of it? I don't know, really. That just seemed like the way to go. I don't know that there was any big, complicated thought process involved. Mm. Some of it's just instinctive. And, um, 
I try not to bore myself. I mean, I think if I'm getting bored while I'm writing, then that's a problem and I should do something else. So, um, and part of it was just wanting to really recreate what it might be like to undergo that experience. Um, you know, we have all this imagery from iPhone videos of police brutality in the US and they're kind of quite moving, but there's something a little bit um, removed about them and distance about them because you're not really in the moment, you're just sort of catching a snippet of it. And so I thought it might be interesting to recreate what one of those moments might actually feel like from the inside. And um, also just cinematically, I know that, that Catherine and I over the years have talked a lot about um, dramas that unfold in very contained spaces, which is something that interests her. So it was really a combination of those two things. But it's, it's that question of getting into that 1967, I mean, so complicated in terms of the attitudes, the way that the power thing plays out, you know, all of that. How do you, so much steeping yourself in all of that must go on before you get to that stage. Before writing that, you mean? Yeah. It's a lot of looking at uh, news footage, interviews at the time, um, police reports, documentaries. Um, I mean, the event itself was fairly well documented because there was a there was an investigation by the Detroit police and then there was a Department of Justice slash FBI investigation and then there were a number of reporters that looked at it and then John Hersey famously wrote a book about it. I mean, he was also a reporter. So uh, there was quite a lot of material to go through. I mean, I probably had 10 or 15 boxes full of transcripts and stuff uh, in my office. And um, so, yeah, I just immersed myself in the material for probably about six months. Yeah, a bit of homework, for sure. Perhaps a, a quick word about this character, Kraus, the, um, uh, the, the young cop who is going to, who is, who is not, that's not the name of the real person. Um, there is a real person. This is actually based on a real person. Yeah, Melvin Dismukes, that's a real guy. He's still around, and uh, I spoke to him quite a lot before writing the script, and that, uh, so the way I work, that, that, he was charged, even though he was basically innocent. He was charged with, uh, I think it was assault, and he was interrogated and so forth. So that, that's very much drawn from real life. And then, as you say, the other character who Will Poulter played mm -hmm. so bravely. Yeah. Will, by the way, is the nicest guy you'll ever, <laughs> you'll ever meet. And I, I mean, uh, an extraordinary talent. But um, also, based on a, also based on a real life individual whose name has been changed for any number of reasons. But, um, but uh, somebody who I think represented a kind of and the character certainly embodies, as I was saying in the speech, not just racism, because that's, that's a little too easy, but also, but also like a real murderous, uh, you know, sociopathic uh, character trait. And, um, and it was a, allowed to exist in the police department in those days. I mean, he was eventually forced out, but, uh, not not until not until after he had killed four people. 
Yeah, and congratulations for you. I mean, to Will, that's, it is an extremely brave performance. And uh, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of actors, I think, probably being quite nervous of taking that on. Anyway, magnificent job there. But the that whole thing about find that gun and there is no gun. I mean, that that is actually a kind of broader political thing. That is a, if you like, almost a systematic thing quite often within various forms of authority within um, when they can't actually find the source of the problem and the hunt gets more and more sort of panicky and more hysterical within that. Yeah, for sure. And the other feature is that the, the crime, and I, the, to me this is one of the more interesting things, uh, and it's depicted quite clearly in the movie, but the crime, which is these police the officers killing these kids, uh, didn't really occur in some dark alley somewhere. The state police was around, the National Guard was around, and so another a number of people were aware of what was going on. Maybe not in the room when somebody was being killed, but they were aware of this sort of intensely hostile situation. And um, I don't know, that's just extraordinary to me. That's just extraordinary. What, what kind of mentality would have had to have been operating for people to have been aware that this was happening and not stopped it? It's a good question, I think, because I mean, you could ask yourself that about things that are going on today. What kind of mentality might be operating that would allow these sorts of things to happen? Because, I mean, police work is very hard, and I have friends who are police officers and so forth, and I, I'm not anti-police in any way. I'm really not. And, um, and I, I, I have a lot of respect for anybody who puts on a uniform to serve, and anybody who goes into public service of any kind. I, but clearly at that time um, in Detroit, uh, there was a, a mentality that existed in the police department which allowed this kind of thing to occur. And I, maybe that mentality doesn't exist in Detroit anymore. I would argue it probably doesn't. The, the Detroit Police Department has changed a lot. It's now actually one of the more diverse departments in America. And, Small towns send some of their cops up to Detroit to experience big city policing, but um, there are still a lot of places where the where the departments don't reflect the 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 people they are meant to be protecting and serving. But the idea that people don't um, don't report abuse of whatever kind it is or atrocities or whatever it. Kind it is. I mean, that certainly hasn't gone away, as we know from you know, all sorts of current events, one way and another. I'm going to open this up now to questions from you as well. Um, there's a hand up here. Thanks very much. It's been very interesting to hear you uh, speak tonight. But one thing I wanted to ask you is about your process. So it sounds like you do a lot of research in your projects, but when it comes to actually writing that first draft, and it's the start of your working day and you've got a blank page. What's your process for getting that first draft? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, I, I mean, basically I, I procrastinate until it seems, <laughs> it, you know, it seems uh, very irresponsible. And then at that point I sit down and write. And, uh, but I do like, I do, for me it is important to try to do the research and not, not not for any high-minded reason, I just don't want to be completely full of shit when I'm sitting down writing a character who, you know, I don't, I 
have an, or an experience that I haven't had myself. And so even though there's fictionalization, the idea for me is that, that absorbing the actual history or the actual facts will you know, make me a better, a better writer. Um, I sort of got a process question as well. You mentioned that your journey began when Paul Haggis optioned your article and that you then got to look behind the curtain and such with working with him. I was just wondering if you could talk again a bit more about process and in particular how you sort of, I mean, I think you're absolutely brilliant at sort of balancing character with action and sort of finding the sort of each in the other. And I just would like to ask you about that. Well, thanks. I, I, I don't know that I have a, um, it's just instinctual, really. And um, people have asked me about the structure of this, of Detroit, because it's a bit odd, uh, the way the movie's put together, if you think about it. It's, in fact, it's maybe kind of stupid. I mean, it, it, it opens up on a bunch of people who are not actually in the movie, for example. And then it spends a great deal of time diagramming a situation that is the, just merely the context for the actual drama in terms of the first 15 minutes sort of diagramming the riots and rebellions and so forth. Um, I, I don't know that there's a rational explanation for that. I mean, I could come up with one after the fact, I'm sure. But, but, but mainly it's just instinctual about what's going to keep the audience or what's going to keep me interested. And I think that's how I work. And I, I sort of assume that if I'm interested, maybe somebody else would be too. And I actually find that quite liberating because it's a much easier, not easier, but it's, it allows me not to have to be confined to uh, the rules, if you will, of screenwriting. Most of which are just moronic, if you think about them. <laughs> On page 30, this should happen. It's like, okay, I guess so. Hi there, I wanted to ask, given the films that we've discussed today are all based in fact, whether there's this, the, the word responsibility hangs over you more as a writer in doing fact-based films uh, than it would if you had something that was completely fictional and you could create the morality of the characters, the morality of the, the world in which it takes place? It may well. I mean, I'm sure... I'm, I, I, I do feel a lot of responsibility, but I think I would feel that way if I ever got a job writing a science fiction movie, too. Um, and I, and I, I would take slight issue with the word fact, because, I mean, the, actually, Detroit is quite factual, more so than people realize. But it's not so much fact that I'm concerned with as the underlying truth of the situation. Um, and uh, I, I, I do feel responsible, but... but um, but not in a bad way. I mean, not in a troublesome way. I mean, I just, I want to do things that I can be proud of. So um, it's not so much like an obligation to other people as just like being able to look myself in the mirror. Um, thanks for being here. This has all been really interesting and wonderful. Um, as a young screenwriter who doesn't want to write Thor, um, for me, there are really few people whose work is more inspiring and um, more of a role model. So it's, it's really a, a privilege. Um, to listen to you tonight. Um, I, I want to ask about the political aspect of your work. Um, I've written a few screenplays, one based on a, a racially charged police shooting, one based on a young American man who was recruited into ISIS. Both true stories based on people I know. And um, when this has gotten to the hands of Hollywood types, they say, 
um, you know, good stories, but too political. So my question for you is, how do you write such politically charged and poignant work without it being too political? <laughs> I, when, we fin when we were, I'll tell you a little story. When, when Her Herlocker was finished, we had quite a hard time finding a distributor. Because we, we, we raised the money to make the movie uh, independently, and the money all came out of Europe. It's not a, I mean, the financier was, lived in America, but he was French, and all the money came out of Europe. Anyway, so then it was quite a job to find somebody to actually put the movie out. And we sold it to a company that doesn't exist anymore. So I won't name them, but because those people, some of those people still work today. But anyway, they we found a distributor, and the, in the very first meeting, an executive whose name I won't say because he's still working today at another company. Anyway, he said, "Look, the movie's great, really intense and everything, but do you think it has to take place in Iraq?" <laughs> I thought, "Well, we're, I mean, what? What do you mean? Like, I mean, it's in every shot, you know." And, and he said the same thing. He said, "You know, it's really political and a bit of a hot button issue, and the story is amazing, and the tension and the bomb and the guy being sort of wrapped up in this." sort of addiction and all that is cool, but like, could, you know, if it could be set somewhere else, we'd really have something commercial. So, um, and he may have been right, actually, but I completely sympathize with that response. I don't have a good answer for you, but, you, but maybe it'll help you to know you're not the only person that gets asked that stuff. <laughs> um, hi. Over here? Oh, yeah. yes, thank you. Um, so, presumably as a journalist, you're used to working writing on your own and going and doing the research and you're on your own a lot. And then I just had a question about the process with now writing with film. I'd imagine at some stage you discuss with the director what, you know, the script and, and your both vision on how that pans out, etc. Um, but do you have, like, personally, people that you go to with drafts of the script that you show, that you get feedback from, or do you have quite an isolated process? Mm. I mean, there are a few people I'll, sh I'll, I'll show drafts to. Uh, I'm a bit sensitive about that because I'm very susceptible to, especially when I'm writing, to almost anything that, I'm, that I hear. Uh, and I'll probably tend to overvalue or overweight either, e either praise or criticism. Um, so I'm protective, not because I don't, I mean, not because I think, you know, people are mean or unhelpful, but just because I, I, I just don't trust myself too much with, with, that, with that kind of input. And then, um, but globally, I mean, I, since I've made three movies with Catherine, you know, we, before I would even write, I mean, we would talk a bit about what it is I'm trying to do. Um, so it's not as if I'm working in a vacuum. And, and I, I would talk to, I mean, in this case, the, the idea for the movie, the first person I talked to was, the, was Megan Ellison. I mean, outside of my company, outside of the people that I work with every day, but it was Megan Ellison. And you know, that was a conversation about how the movie might work financially. So it's, it, it's not like created in a vacuum. But I do, but I do try to, um, I do try to limit um, comments. <laughs> cool, thanks. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, hi, Mark. It's my great honor to be here and talk with you. And one of my favorite lines from your script is, I'm the motherfucker who found this place. 
said by Jessica Chastain. And usually we can find very strong and powerful male characters in the war or political films, but um, the Zero Dark Thirty is an exception, and the character uh, Jessica Chastain built um, has very strong, powerful, and uh, impressive characteristics. So I want to ask, when you create this kind of female characters, is there any particular factors you will consider to put in your script? Yeah, thank you so much. You mean because it was a female? Yeah, yeah, female. Mm, not really. I mean, again, she was inspired. There was sort of a real-life analog to her. So the way she spoke and so forth, I mean, the, the, was inspired by the way this person, I mean, she's quite a foul-mouthed individual. <laughs> um, quite street in her presentation, even though she was well-educated and so forth. Um, I think actually Jessica played her with a bit more elegance. But um, uh, no, I didn't think, and I tried not to think of that, because I, I think that would lead to a weird sort of headspace. And so um, the only time I thought about her, you know, the only time that entered would, was more in the way I thought about other characters viewing her than in the way she presented herself. So I did spend a lot of time thinking about how it would have seemed to other people in the agency in, let's say, Islamabad when a young woman showed up to do this work, which is very, you know, I mean, can traditionally be quite macho. And so thinking about that, then like little lines pop into your head. There's a moment in which Kyle Chandler, who plays the CIA station chief, sort of um, gives a kind of aside to um, Jason Clark's character as they both first see Maya walking in to their offices. And it's just sort of like, oh, I see what you mean or something. And it's sort of a, a, a sly reference to her looks. So stuff like that I thought about. But in terms of her, the way her mind worked, I, I, I didn't. I just sort of thought of her as an analyst. And quite frankly, one of the challenges of the movie is there's so much information in it. All those streets that are being listed, those are like actual streets that I had to figure out where they were and everything. And there's, you know, figuring out the family tree of Al-Qaeda, which is represented, again, probably more accurately than people realize in the movie. Um, that was quite, you know, that was quite a lot of, took a, to, took a lot of mental work. So that's what I thought about. Um, it kind of follows on from questions that have already been asked. Um, but I think one of the things that really strikes me about your films is, is actually that you don't give a lot of cues as to how people are supposed to perceive people, uh, the characters in your films. Uh, you, there is that balance between an impartial depiction of a sort of honest and real event or real things that have taken place. Uh, and you've spoken a lot about the word agenda and politics. Um, but I was just wondering how, how does that change from the process of writing your screenplay to working with... You were saying earlier that you work thinking sort of with the actors in mind that you're writing for, when you actually come to working with them, especially with things like Detroit, where you're working with young African-American actors now, how do they sort of perceive the writing that you've 
or the lines that you've given them and do you feel like it does come across as more of an agenda when you've when it's interpreted by them or do you think that well, I don't know <laughs> that's about it well um, in the case of Detroit I wasn't actually uh, I didn't really do any rewriting on set I wasn't actually uh, I was my time I was sort of splitting my time between that and another project by the time I was filming so in that that was much it was a little unusual for me because on, on zero dark 30 in the hurt locker I was kind of there every every day and kind of like pretty uh, in, involved in almost every frame and in, and in the case of Detroit uh, I, I think I probably had a few conversations with actors not every one of them but just but not 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 all that much actually. So uh, it was, it was, that was a more typical experience of handing the script off and then not really having as much uh, influence on how it turned out. But in terms of the writing, so I don't really know how to answer that question, but in terms of the writing, uh, the orientation of the writing, I, I, there was a, when I, back when I used to do a lot of prose writing, there was a, uh, a teacher I had who talked about the point of view of the writer to his subject and, um, and one of the things that he was encouraging was to kind of look as a writer um, at the subjects as if you were at eye level with them and sort of on the same moral plane, which, is, um, which sort of stayed with me. And so that is, that, that is how I try to do it. And um, not every writer does that. There's a lot of writers that uh, if you really look at the work, they're, they're assuming a slightly elevated position to their characters, as if they have slightly more um, knowledge of the way the world works than their characters do, which is fine. I mean, it's something against that, but it's, it's, that's a particular approach. And so I try not to do that and try to just know what my characters might know. And, uh, you know, I have no idea what the, what the actors <laughs> thought of that, to be honest, but, but that's where I start. Yeah, I, I suppose, sorry, just that it must be interesting when you then watch it back to see how your lines have been interpreted by those people. And I, I imagine it must be sometimes surprising to see how it comes across, what you wrote one time, and then to see it performed. Do you ever feel like, wow, that's given a new life to what I sort of interpret or how I... Well, yeah, completely. I mean, having your work performed by actors is, is an amazing experience. It's actually probably the best part of this job. And uh, we did a table read of The Hurt Locker early on with some friends. And I was quite depressed afterwards because I thought, oh my god, the script is terrible. <laughs> and Catherine said, no, 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 it's just, it's these, the actors weren't real, you know, it's the, not that there were anything wrong with them. But then, and then when she cast Jeremy and we did another reading, I had the. I thought, oh my god, I'm a genius. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, it. I mean, it really does come down to casting so much, and a good actor can can give almost anything life. And uh, so it's a great, great pleasure and a great privilege to have your work performed, as opposed to just written. And uh, I mean, it's it's fun to write it and everything, but it's but it's really it's an honor to see somebody put themselves into it and inhabit it. And yeah, there are times when you're surprised and you think, why'd you go in that direction? But for the most part, it's, 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 it's quite amazing. Just to wind up, can I um, just ask you one thing? Um, 
you mentioned that you are working on something um, about the last American election. Talked to a number of filmmakers recently who said, just don't really quite know what to do next because it's all so strange. I mean, current events are so strange that it's almost beyond being able to cope with it. Is that something that you felt at all? No, I'm going to sort it out for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course it's strange, but I, but, I but I did feel a certain responsibility. I mean, it sounded a little corny, but... I had another project that I was planning to do, and then uh, after the election, I was so struck by the direction the country was turning that I felt like a bit obligated to, uh, I don't know, to, to enter the fray somehow. And so hopefully, uh, and I do think there's quite a lot of confusion out there, and that's one of the things that dramas can do. And I mean, I mean there's quite a lot that could be said about the war, for example, there's quite a lot that could be said about the hunt for bin Laden or police brutality or the Detroit rebellion. But one of the things that dramas can do, I think, effectively is distill and, and um, essentialize in a way, hopefully not that, that, that brutalizes you know, the truth, but in a way that's enlightening. So I think a lot of artists, I'm not the only one, but a lot of artists, I think, I think it's actually going to be a good time for movies because I think a lot of artists are responding to the sort of external chaos and thinking, now, hold on a second. I should do something here. And uh, so we'll see. I think there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of good stuff coming out in the next couple of years. I'm sure there will. Well, well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.